Welcome to the Think Law Podcast with Colin Seal, where we challenge you to imagine a world where critical thinking is no longer a luxury good, and equip you with the powerful but practical tools to make that possible in our schools, in leadership, and in our homes. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Think Law Podcast. I'm Colin Seal, and I can tell you that as I'm recording this, I am still over the moon excited at what might be one of the biggest constitutional developments in years, maybe in 10 years. What I'm talking about is the Supreme Court's recent decision to extend workplace protections against discrimination based on gender orientation, uh, sexual orientation, transgender status. This was huge. But the topic of today's podcast episode might not seem obviously connected to that, although it definitely is. And the question that we're exploring today is, how do we speak their language? How do we speak their language with their in quotations as in, I'm not really getting into foreign language. I'm not a language expert. I speak English. I speak Brooklyn, I speak Bayesian. Those of you that don't know what Bayesian is, it is Barbados, it's where my family is from, and I spent a whole lifetime listening to Caribbean folks talk the way Caribbean folks do. So I'm trilingual in the different ways that I approach the English language, but when I talk about speaking their language, I'm talking about something very different. And looking at this case in particular could give us some insight into what I'm talking about. So here we have a decision that is shockingly decided by a six to three margin. So anyone that will look at the issue of rights for homosexual people in this country, rights for transgender people in this country, would probably, if you had to score that around political cards, would call that uh, a progressive uh, liberal issue. And here we have a court that is pretty staunchly conservative in terms of its majority makeup, especially since the appointments that have been made in the last few years. So when we start thinking about what that means, it means that the language that's persuasive is strict interpretation of the Constitution. That's what conservative jurisprudence is all about. That's what conservative judges are known for, having a conservative take based off of what the plain language of the statute means. So I think about this, and I think about the idea that on the side of the plaintiffs, right, the people who were suing because in one of the cases, uh, an employee had joined a a gay softball league and had gotten terminated because of that, Uh, a transgender employee had went through a gender transition while employed and had got fired for that, another employee had revealed to someone that he was gay and got fired for that, so like, The plaintiff side could have stuck with its own language around like, hey, like it's wrong to discriminate based off of gender identity, based off of sexual orientation, even though in federal law, there's no precedent for that. There's no law for that. The plain language of the Title VII statute in the Civil Rights Act that protects against workplace discrimination extends that that protection to Discrimination based off of race, national orientation, and sex, to name a few. But instead, 
they decided to use their language, their, in terms of how do I persuade at least one or two of the more conservative judges on his court? I need to use their language. I need to look at the plain language. I need to make it clear that there's no way that you can discriminate against folks for their gender identity or for their sexual orientation without discriminating based on sex. And it was so interesting to see Neil Gorsuch actually sit and like go through the analysis of going through like, hey, you know, so I, logically, logically, if you tell me that like I'm going to penalize one of my male employees because he's attracted to another male, like you can't do that. You can't get to that point without starting with sex. So they spoke their language. And I step back and I've been thinking about this, like what is the power of speaking their language? I realize this as a parent of a four-year-old and a seven-year-old and there might be outcomes that I'm looking for, but I recognize if I don't say these outcomes in language that they can process and understand, it doesn't really make sense to them. I need to be crystal clear about what I'm saying. I need to do it in a language that's going to connect and resonate with where they're at. And sometimes the language changes are subtle but powerful. I remember when my daughter was preparing for a Christmas concert where she was going to be playing piano at the mall. And I remember telling her, like, hey, Rose, you, you got to practice. Rose, hey, 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 let's practice. Let's practice Silent Night. Come on, let's practice it. And she didn't want to practice. Like, practice wasn't going, I don't need to practice. Uh, I have my lesson. I don't want to practice. And it became this thing around, like, I'm telling her to do something. And it's like, we're speaking different languages. And I thought about it. What's her language? How can I translate this into her language? And I remember thinking, hmm, Rose, you know, there's about 30, 40 people that are going to be playing in this concert at the mall. How do you want to do? Like, do, do you want to like be like one of the best or maybe the best? Of course, I like being the best. I'm like, okay. What do you think it would look like if you were the best? Like, if you were the best, like, what would that sound like? What would that look like? I mean, well, like, everyone else is probably going to be playing from their book. If I if I could play it by memory, by heart, I've got this. Or if I, if I do it with no mistakes, and I'm, I'm like, okay, so, like, for you, forget about everyone else, but for you, you're telling me your standard is no mistakes and by heart. All right, so, like, let's see if we can do this with no mistakes. Let's see if we can do it by memory. In fact, let's see if we can style it up a little bit because I think I might be able to give you some tips to make it sound even cooler. We weren't practicing anymore. Now we were trying to execute a flawless performance. Now we were trying to wow the crowd. And for my daughter, who I don't know where she gets it from, but she has some level of desire to engage in showmanship. Again, I don't know who she gets it from. I spoke her language. I spoke her language. Think about when I was working for a large government agency in child welfare and we were trying to roll out this new system that had these reports in it and we're going to be a way to like 
really helped people kind of manage where they were at and, and look at accountability a little bit differently. It was a massive shift from the way business had been done. And I remember like the language we were hearing around accountability and, and accountability. And I just want to make sure these people are doing their visits when they said they are and whatever. And I was like, yeah, that is, that's an interesting choice of language. We see it in business, we see it in education context, and I don't know that accountability really, really moves the needle in a lot of cases, because it doesn't doesn't feel all that good. You don't feel like a trusted professional when you hear the word accountability, accountability, accountability. So I remember framing it using their language of like, you know, what we're really trying to do is give you a single version of the truth. Huh? Yeah, like a single version of the truth. Like, it always messes y'all up because I've listened to you all. I've seen the frustration when this one spreadsheet with 18 million colors in it says one thing and the data system over here says one thing and your notes over here say another thing. But if we've got this one single version of the truth, now that truth might be inaccurate. We might need to update it, but at least we know what the truth is at any given moment. I've just saved you the work of having to go to three different sources to figure out which one is the actual truth. And we simplify the processes. We're saving you time. So that's what this reports are all about, making sure that you at least know what the truth is. So when we start thinking about their language, there's power there. So how do we speak their language? So I want to outline a three-step process for working us through practical but powerful path to speak their language. It starts out by noting accents over accents. We got to pay attention to the accents more than we do the accents. Now, that sounded like complete nonsense, but if you really think about what I'm saying here, a lot of times when we listen to people, we're literally listening to them. We're hearing like how they speak. One might call that their accent, right? Like I, I might have this little New York accent. I might talk quickly. I might kind of throw out all these phrases and rapid fire speed. But like you're listening to my accent. You're hearing my voice, but you might not necessarily be listening to my points of emphasis. Okay. So as a pianist, as a musician, I think about accents. Like what are the notes that I seem to be playing louder? What are the things that I seem to hold for a longer period of time? Where are my accents? And when you start listening to someone, they show you who they are. They show you what they care about. I remember when I first started this idea around think law and I wanted to like spark a critical thinking revolution, but it turned out that like nobody was Googling how to teach critical thinking to all kids. What they were Googling was the school to prison pipeline. That was their accent. What they were Googling was like closing the achievement gap, right? You've got this school where for decades, you've got underperformance for our black and brown kids that are living in poverty. Like, that's their accent. Almost every couple of sentences throughout the day, you're hearing that being prioritized and spoken. So I want to listen to the accents over the accents. What are they emphasizing? And that tells me the language. That helps me understand, like, what is this person's priority? Sometimes it's school culture. When you look in different organizations, Sometimes it's the bottom line, right? Like we, we just need to have like a, a stronger bottom line. We need to cut costs. We need to become more lean. You start listening to these themes. 
You start listening to families and parents. Like, what are they saying? I just want my kid to, I just want my kid to, I just want my kid to. Potential. It's about potential. It's about my kid's potential. They're not realizing their potential. And I want to understand this language. I want to know the accents over the accents. Once I know that, once I've identified those points of emphasis, the second step of learning how to speak in their language is acknowledging the divide. Acknowledging what is getting lost in translation. Understanding that you have a different space because people are different. So naturally, you're going to have different points of emphasis. I can be very practical about this. The story I told about my daughter, okay? Like, I really want her to practice as a point of like, hey, like I grew up playing the piano and you just practice for X amount of hours a day, a week, so that you're ready for this performance. But like for her, practice sounded like torture. Practice sounded like something she was being forced to do against her will. But she voluntarily wanted to play the piano. She was excited about this concert. So I realized it was a divide between her excitement for the concert and what I knew was needed to help her be prepared to do very well in this concert. Acknowledging that divide matters. Going back to another legal argument to start, like this divide is a real important piece as well. When you start looking at the controversial issue of a woman's right to have an abortion legally, what's so interesting is you have a, a, a firm gap. Right. On on one hand, you've got folks that believe that like abortion is murder. On another hand, you've got folks that believe that like, you know, this is a woman's choice. It's her body, it's her choice. So you've got a divide. You've got a massive divide. Step three is where it gets funky. Step three is where the critical thinking is heightened. Step three is where you gotta get to work on the work. This is bridging the divide. So you've already thought about accents over accents, right? Like what are the points of emphasis more than just listening, right? Like where is this person really prioritizing? You're thinking about acknowledging that divide, pointing out that gap, pointing out like, why are you hearing this as like a torturous practice a process when I'm hearing it as what you need to be ready for this concert? And now we get to work on bridging the divide. Bridging the divide is not easy. It's not easy, but I want to go to kind of how this works. So if I am thinking about this from a level of that example around abortions, like how do I get to a point where I can say that like there's some sort of legal basis for this? It's not explicitly in the constitution. And here's what I think was so powerful about this decision, regardless of how you lean politically, regardless of your views on abortion. How do they get there? Well, they looked at the idea from the post-revolutionary war, one of the Acts that are enshrined in our Bill of Rights. Uh, our Bill of Rights is that like you can't you can't quarter soldiers. Like the soldiers can't come and like come up in our houses, right? So they can't do that. And on top of that, we can't have like the government, the police, like coming in our homes without like a warrant. Like we've got this space, and they've basically put this together and called it a penumbra. This idea that like when you put these things together as a collective. We've got a right to privacy. We have a constitutional right to privacy. And the government interfering on that right 
through something like abortions in this case, it's infringing on that right to privacy that comes from these things that were enshrined in our Bill of Rights. So we think about that and we're like, the legal jumps it take, the logical leaps that it takes to move from quartering soldiers in someone's home, which was a very common practice pre-revolutionary war, to get to a woman's body. That's an enormous logical climb, but they did the work to connect the dots. So what does that work look like for you? How do you connect the dots when it comes to bridging that gap? Maybe if you're managing an organization with a lot of employees in the middle of a global pandemic, instead of calling it mass furloughs and pay deductions, pay reductions, maybe we call it shared sacrifice. Maybe it's what we all need to do to make sure that we can all stay employed and all keep this organization moving. In education, I'm a huge fan of reframing the conversation around achievement gaps. And sometimes people think it's enough to call, well, it's not really achievement gaps, it's opportunity gaps. I say, forget that language altogether. What if instead of opportunity gaps and instead of achievement gaps and closing these different gaps, we talked about what it would look like to shatter achievement ceilings. Say more. Shattering achievement ceilings. Now we're not placing some arbitrary limit. We're talking about going through. We're talking about our kids who were typically trying to prepare for some minimal level that we know is not enough. We live in an unjust world where unfortunately a lot of our poorest students of color in our schools got to work twice as hard to get half as far. That's the reality we're in. It's a messed up reality, but it's still real. So with that said, what do we do? Okay, I use different language. I bridged it. So as you think about the space that we're in, where the power of language could be so visceral, right? Like when we get to a point where we can say like, Black Lives Matter, and for some people, it's hard to not respond, well, all lives matter. If we think about that, and we think about like their accent, their accent, like what are they really saying? What are they really emphasizing? They're emphasizing this idea that like, I don't really like that you're singling out like black lives for mattering. And if I know that that's what, the, what they're saying, their, 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 their accent is saying, I can acknowledge that there's a gap because in my mind, I'm saying black lives matter. In their mind, they're saying that like, well, black lives matter, but these other lives matter too. But I want to bridge the divide. I want to bridge the divide. I want to help this person understand that right now you're saying that all lives matter. But if you look at the black category of that all, is that really true? Is that really true? If I start digging into it, like, is it actually true that every single person has that level of value? Are we really doing that? If I start saying, whoa, black on black crime, like, what are they trying to accent here? They're trying to accent this idea that, like, well, it can't just all be about racism. Well, there's other explanations, there's other things going on. Like, yeah, I get it. And in my mind, I can acknowledge the divide. I can acknowledge that somehow this person hasn't gotten the memo that like white on white crime 
has had a similar percentage of black on black crime because of segregation, because of the fact that like, that's the way our world works. Most crimes are committed against people of that same race when it comes to those violent crimes. So bridging that divide, we've got to do this work. It's not just about the success of your business. It's not just about raising a child effectively. It's not just about the success of our education system. Our society needs us to learn how to speak their language. Thank you for listening to the Think Law Podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast by clicking on the subscribe option on whatever platform you're listening to. Thank you for helping us create a world where critical thinking is no longer a luxury good. To get the latest and greatest updates about our work, please join our mailing list by texting THINKLAW to 66866. Thank you for checking out the Think Law podcast. But did you know you can dig even deeper? My first book, Thinking Like a Lawyer, a framework to teach critical thinking to all students, is now available on Amazon or many of your favorite book websites. So please check it out and be a part of our critical thinking revolution. Thank you so much for listening to the Think Law Podcast.